three, two, one. Hit it. What? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for Seriously, a reason. You had one job. I, just, I, I can't with Jesus some of these people. Christ. Put um, down your goddamn cell phone. I don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, uh, would you rather? All right, trust me. Take no, my advice. Seriously, that legit happened. How's it going, guys? Welcome to Nervous Habits. This week, I'm joined by Professor of Psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine and Chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic, Dr. Anna Lemke. Dr. Lemke and I explore issues including why moderate exposure to pain can inadvertently lead to pleasure, how electroconvulsive shock therapy works to reset the brain, how euphoric recall reinforces chemical dependency, and finally, why it might be better to tolerate pain or discomfort rather than just popping a pill. All that and so much more on another episode of Nervous Habits. I think this podcast is coming out right after Halloween. Um, and you can hear Penny squeaking her toy in the background. Um, and it's funny because I, when I was a kid, for Halloween, you couldn't wear masks in school. They, that was a, a big policy. Like They didn't want you obstructing covering your face in any way um and now you know everyone's costume involves a mask although i wonder if 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 you do you need to wear a mask on top of your costume right like if someone is a costume of like a um i had like a gorilla head that was my costume or like a um a giraffe mask do you need a mask on top of the gorilla or, or the giraffe or underneath um these are the big questions i will be or I, I might be uh, – all right, that's she's playing a little bit intense. I might be um, dressing up, dressing myself up and dressing Penny up for Halloween. I guess it was the past. I, I may have dressed up myself with Penny for Halloween. Um, I, I'll let you know, I guess, in the next in the next episode uh, what we end up doing just because these are recorded in advance. But, um, yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful night, beautiful fall, a crisp fall night here. Um Penny was sniffing for food before, and uh, during the episode, actually, during the interview um, uh, with Anna Lemke, she's snoring a little bit, so hopefully the audio doesn't <laughs> doesn't pick that up. Um, I'll also say I went back and I listened to my last interview um, with Max with Max Chafkin, and the the audio was was really uh, echoey and and. Um, distorted and and I was I was sort of pulling my hair out wondering what was wrong with the audio why was it so off and I realized and this is a little bit embarrassing podcast new moment but the gain um the button that that determined the gain for for this this blue yeti microphone that I have was turned the wrong way do you know how like when you get in the shower and you're not sure if left is cold or right is cold or left is hot right is hot and you just you know I was twisting the gain button in the wrong direction so instead of sounding you know in, instead of speaking in in a, a tone or an amplitude or whatever that was not too loud it ended up being just all over the place so uh, fear not the audio is much better this time around um, I think not go wood for the interview. I mean, it should sound better now. Uh, and, and yeah, this has been, this is shaping up to be a very, very busy, um, very busy season for me. I'm actually taking the MPRE exam today. Uh, the day that this podcast episode comes out will be the day that I'm taking the uh, professional ethics exam. Is that, is that what it is? It's the um, 
MPRE, I, prob I probably should know this. It is the uh, multi-state professional responsibility examination. The first step in becoming a state accredited lawyer before the bar, you have to pass that. So I'll be taking that today um, and I'm loading up on, on coffee. I've actually taken to drinking my coffee out of a straw, mm. out of like a glass straw. So I got that covered as some, some old soggy Oreos before and, and ready to go. Um, I got to say, before I jump into this conversation, um, Anna Lemke, who I interviewed today, uh, is, is a, a, a psychiatrist, a professor, an author. Um, I'll, I'll introduce her in a moment. Really one of the best guests that I've had on, on Nervous Habits so far. And uh, uh, our conversation, you know, we, we initially we started talking about the pleasure pain balance, which is what this episode is about. But by the end of it, you know, we ended up talking about uh, sort of like big picture things like why people are so afraid to be alone with their thoughts and um, the link between fear of boredom and potential like uh, concerns with our mortality as human beings and, um, you know, uh, sort of profound questions about the nature of mental illness and, and um, psychotropic medication, uh, which as all you guys know, from listening to the pod, like mental illness, anxiety, and, and OCD is, is a topic that's really close to my heart. Um, you know, if, if you're new to the pod, excuse me, if you're a new listener, uh, I'm, I'm, I speak pretty forthright about um, the fact that I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder and obsessive compulsive disorder when I was much younger. Um, and so, you know, I, I can relate to a lot of, a lot of, the, you know, when we have these discussions about about addiction, about what's happening in the brain when you're taking medication and about how it dulls your emotions and your personality. Like I can speak to that aside from just looking at like the empirical, like the third party external, you know, evidence that people like write about like abstractly. I, I can sort of share my lived experiences, um, you know, and actually as I've done in the pod before, actually living with O C D and sort of like being in my own head and my own body and um uh, you know, having those those thoughts, those ruminations, those, and we talk about on the podcast. Uh, sometimes, you know, I'll 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 have like a I'll have like a flash, like a vision of something bad that's going to happen. Like sort of like I'm trying to think of an appropriate example. You know, <laughs> this this might sound a little a little too specific, um, but you know, if you're like walking and you see a tree branch sticking out, um, and you instinctively sort of duck. Sometimes I have like a little like a flash or a vision of myself getting poked in the eye with a stick. Uh, and Anna and I talk about experiences like that and about how like I'm not sort of I'm not seeing the future. I'm not like desiring to poke my eye out with a stick. I'm more so like my brain is presenting this this carnal fear that I have that's deep rooted and pushing it to the surface for me to acknowledge and dispense with. And anyway, that that's sort of like some of the things that we talk about. Um, talk about how both of us, both uh, Dr. Anna Lemke and myself are in many ways addicted to our anxieties. Our default state is anxiety and neurosis. And I, I respond to that. I relate to that a lot. And But you know, I, <laughs> the, title of my, the title of my podcast, where are we? Sorry, that was a weird, it was a weird ding. Um, unless I'm hearing things now. But you know, the, the title of my podcast is Nervous Habits. So certainly, um, you know, I... I've embraced – I think for a long time I've tried to like, you know, eschew this part of my identity, but I'm embracing it. You know, I'm – you know, Larry David made billions of dollars uh, 
making this <laughs> commodity, commoditizing this this neurosis. Um, it's, you know, I'm just a Jewish guy from Brooklyn. What can I say? This is who I am. So uh, amazing conversation with Anna. Towards the end of the, uh, of the conversation, Penny actually makes a cameo. Um, I don't know if I'm going to release the video, but um, I, I might just so you can see her, like, her cute little puppy head, like, uh, emerge from from my uh, my futon and sort of look at me like you guys are talking about anxiety. I don't want to get involved in this conversation, anxious little pup. But uh, before we get there, I just want to I just want to uh, say a little bit about our guest. So Dr. Anna Lemke is a professor of psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine and chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. A clinician scholar, she has published more than 100 peer-reviewed papers, book chapters, and commentaries. She sits on the board of several state and national addiction-focused organizations, has testified before several committees in the House of Representatives and Senate, keeps an active speaking calendar, and maintains a thriving clinical practice. And she published a book in 2016, Drug Dealer MD, How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked, and Why It's So Hard to Stop. Um, she appeared on the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, an unvarnished look at the impact of social media on her lives. I did not know that, and now I have to talk to Anna another time because I did not realize that she appeared in the documentary, and that's one of my favorite documentaries. And as soon as I finish recording this intro, I'm literally going to open up Netflix to watch that, and then I'm going to email Dr. Lemke to ask her questions about that. Um, and her new book, uh, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, is an instant New York Times bestseller and explores how to moderate compulsive overconsumption in a dopamine overload, uh, overloaded world. Tremendous book. Um, I'll talk about it more after the podcast. I can't recommend it high, more highly enough. I'm still sort of reeling from the fact that she was in the social dilemma and that I didn't, <laughs> I didn't pick up on that. But um, yeah, I can't say enough about the conversation with, with Dr. Lemke. Uh, so I hope all of you enjoy it. And without further ado, my conversation with Dr. Anna Lemke. Dr. Anna Lemke, welcome to Nervous Habits. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thanks so much for joining me. What what really stood out to me in reading your book, sort of one of your central theses, um, Dr. Lemke, is that we need to seek out pain and invite it into our lives. So I'm I'm sort of wondering when you were writing the book, you know, why did you postulate that that pain was so valuable? Well, I based that on the neuroscience and the way that the brain works and processes pleasure and pain. And I based that on my experiences in the last 25 years seeing and treating patients with addiction and watching them get into recovery and learning through what they've learned. And I based that on some, some of my own life experiences, just the pure relativity of pleasure and pain and how we need to keep that in mind, especially as we make our way in this new dopamine saturated ecosystem. Mm. And you sort of uh, conceptualize this like scale, the pain pleasure balance for, for folks that haven't read your book yet. What exactly is, is this, is this pleasure pain balance or is it pleasure pain or pain pleasure? Does it, does it matter? Either which one. Yeah, either. It's all good. It's all good. Yeah. I mean, so to me, one of the most interesting findings in neuroscience in the past 75 years is that pleasure and pain are co-located, which means mm. that they're processed in the same parts of the brain and they work like opposite sides of a balance. So whenever we do something pleasurable, it tips to the side of pleasure. When we experience something painful, it tips to the side of pain. But one of the overarching rules governing this balance is that it wants to remain level. It doesn't wanna be tipped for very long to the side of pleasure or pain. And there are good evolutionary reasons for that when you think about the fact that for most of humanity, we have lived in a world of scarcity and ever-present danger. The way that the brain restores a level balance after any deviation 
is by tipping it an equal and opposite amount to the other side. So for example, I like chocolate. If I eat a piece of chocolate, I get a little tip of the scale to the side of pleasure. Mm-hmm. A little bit of dopamine is released in my reward pathway. But no sooner has that happened than my brain will adapt to that bump up in dopamine by down-regulating my own dopamine receptors and my own dopamine transmission, Hmm. bringing dopamine, not just back to tonic baseline levels, but actually below baseline levels. And I kind of imagine this as these little gremlins that represent neuroadaptation, hopping on the pain side of my balance to bring it level again, but the gremlins like it on the balance. So they don't hop off as soon as I'm level, they stay on until, until they stay on the balance until I am tipped an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. And that is that moment of wanting a second piece of chocolate. Mm. Now, if I wait, I'll move on with my day and I'll stop thinking about the chocolate. But if I'm vulnerable, then maybe I will eat another, another piece of chocolate and another one and another one. And I'll do that over days to weeks to months. And eventually I will end up with so many gremlins on the pain side of my balance that I will essentially have changed my set point or my threshold for experiencing pleasure or pain. And that's really what we're talking about when people cross over into addiction, that they develop tolerance, needing more of their drug to get the same effect or more potent forms, Hmm. that they end up in this kind of chronic dopamine deficit state with their balance tipped to the side of pain such that when they're not using, they're experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, which are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and intrusive thoughts of wanting to use otherwise known as craving. And really importantly, once that happens, then we're seeking out our drug, not to get high or feel good, but just to restore a level balance and feel normal. Mm. And when we try to get pleasure from other more modest rewards, they don't do anything for us because it's not enough to outweigh you know, the number of gremlins on, on the pain side of the balance. It, it, it's interesting. Um, and, and we'll talk about neuroadaptation in, in a few minutes. It's, re- it's interesting. Some of the, the experiences that you, that you write about interfacing with, with addicts and um, sort of, you know, them trying to reattain that, that first hit of the drug. I, I, I want to speak for a moment about um, the relative intolerance that Westerners have to pain. You wrote, and, and, and this, this stood out to me, you wrote that prior to the 1900s, doctors believed that some degree of, of pain, a moderate exposure to pain and inflammation um, was actually healthy. By contrast today, Anna, doctors want to avoid pain at all costs. In fact, you write that more than one in four American adults and more than one in t- 20 children takes a psychiatric drug on a daily basis. So why are people today so afraid of pain compared to people 150 years ago? It's a self-reinforcing cycle. The more pleasure we ingest in its various forms and the less pain we experience in its various forms, the more we tip that balance to the side of pain, the less able we are to tolerate any kind of pain and the more pleasure we need to experience any pleasure. So it's kind of a cyclical cycle where our ecosystem has changed. We're no longer living in a world of scarcity and ever-present danger. We're now living in a world of overwhelming abundance where almost every activity and substance has become drugified, made more potent, made more ubiquitous, made more novel, all of which makes it more like an addictive drug. And then to go along with that, really, I think coincident and in parallel is a cultural narrative that tells us that pain is bad for us, that if we experience any kind of pain that will set us up for future pain in the form of PTSD or in the form of chronic pain syndrome, 
that if we experience pain or even if we're just unhappy, there's something wrong with us. We should go see a doctor and take yeah. a medication. This is a very modern concept. So whatever you may think about uh, these modern notions, good or bad, it's important to recognize that they are very modern notions and, and that you know historically, um, doctors and others did believe that some degree of pain was salutary, that it was actually healthy for you. And, and just so listeners are, aren't misconstruing what you're saying, you're not necessarily advising folks to, you know, uh, go into the kitchen and, and place their head into an oven or anything like that. What, what forms of pain do you think would be most, most advantageous? What, what sorts of activities or endeavors are you speaking about? Yeah. So thanks for making that important distinction. One of the things that I should add is that sudden intense pain is really akin to a drug. So there are interesting experiments where um, rats are given a very intense foot, foot shock, an electrical shock to their, um, to their legs, and then their brains are looked at. And what scientists have found is that there's the same kind of elaboration and arborization of dopamine neurons in the reward pathway with an intense foot shock pain as there is with a single exposure to cocaine. The point being that when you get to the very high levels of pain and other aversive stimuli, you essentially turn pain into a drug as well. So I'm mm. obviously not talking about that. I'm not talking about extreme pain, like cutting yourself, which some people do as a way to get out of their heads mm -hmm. and alleviate psychological distress. But that's not what I'm endorsing because that just ends up with the same cyclical problem of addiction. What I'm talking about is what's now called hormesis. Hormesis is Greek for to set in motion. And it's a relatively new area of science showing that mild to moderate noxious or toxic stimuli, it basically triggers the body's healing response, which is similar to this pleasure pain balance. If you pressed on the pain side slightly, you would have the neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pleasure side, which is a more enduring and healthier way for us to get our dopamine and to feel good. So examples of this would be exercise in mild to moderate to intense doses, depending upon the person and how fit they are. It would be things like uh, other aversive physical stimuli, like for example, ice cold water baths, which are now being used as a restorative measure in athletes, for people with chronic pain, for people with various mental health problems. But it doesn't necessarily even have to be a physical type of um, noxious stimuli. It could just be you know, engaging in um, an effortful cognitive activity, like reading a challenging text or an effortful creative activity where you sit there and you have to tolerate a certain amount of uncertainty, frustration, boredom to come up with a new idea. It could be exposing yourself to things that you're afraid of and tolerating that anxiety. It's all about thinking about the brain as a muscle, and building up those mental calluses. Mm. I love all of those examples. In particular, you talk about um, cold water and ice water therapy in the book. And I don't know about you, I'll admit that I'm pretty sheltered when it comes to avoiding discomfort or pain. I'm someone I can't even bring myself to jump into a pool unless it's perfectly warm. You talk in the book about um, cold showers and how for some people getting an ice cold shower can feel like uh, sheer ex ecstasy or Vicodin when you step out of the shower for hours afterwards. So for listeners who maybe are interested in, in testing your hypothesis, is that one thing they can do, endure a cold shower and then step outside and, and see if there are you know, these hormones that you speak about flood their system? 
Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, a cold shower is easily accessible, right? Everybody's got a shower and everybody's got a cold button. So, um, you know, sometimes it's called the 007 or James Bond shower for five minutes at the end of your usual morning hot shower. You just turn off the hot and expose yourself to the cold. Mm. And the you know scientific studies have shown, interestingly, that when um, you take an individual and put them in a cold water bath, that what happens is that steadily over the course of that cold water bath, dopamine levels rise and mm. they remain elevated for at least an hour after that bath. Not only do we get an increase in dopamine levels, but also norepinephrine levels. That's another kind of stimulating or feel good hormone. But let me just emphasize that I myself am totally averse to cold water. Okay. So that's not something that I would ever do because I cannot stand being cold and cold water is not something that I would subject myself to, but I can tell you, I have lots of patients who say that it's a winner for them. And I also have chronic pain patients who say that the ice cold water bath is helpful. I have patients who um, struggle with emotion dysregulation and find that immersing their face in an ice cold water bath, or even just plunging their hands into an ice cold water bath can kind of reset their system. So these are things to try. I'm wondering if, if, um, if there's any sort of, you know, adaptation that the body, uh, makes over time. Like, you know, those, those YouTube videos that talk about how people do like a month of cold showers every day, you know, day one is very challenging, but by day 30, they're, they're sort of more accustomed to it. I mean, I, I, myself, I I tried one of those. I think I dropped out at like day three, but, uh, but do you think that the body can adapt in that way? You know, absolutely. I mean, this is the whole point of the pleasure pain balance that pleasure and pain are relative. And our sense of what is pleasurable as well as what is painful is dependent on what has preceded it because our body adapts to whatever it is. For most of humanity, people only had cold showers or getting in cold rivers. There there wasn't hot water baths, but for the last about 100, 150 years, we've all become accustomed or most of us have become accustomed to, uh, you know, to hot bathing. And so now we're not adapted for cold bathing and it's very hard, but if we were to subject ourselves willfully to that over consecutive days, we too would adapt. You know, we have remarkable ability to, to adapt. We have, this is really what, what resilience is. I mean, resilience is all about continually applying minor stressors to our homeostatic systems, our pleasure pain balance and our other homeostatic systems and letting those stressors be the instigator for this process of neuroadaptation, which is a process essentially of, of uh, healing or upregulation. There's a couple more um, potential uh, applications of this that, that you mentioned in the book, uh, heroic therapies. You talk about cupping, blisters, cauterizing, and moxibustion. Uh, I've, I've never heard of the latter three. I, 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 I've tried cupping myself and I've, I've seen that done a number of times. What, what, what are these procedures and how effective are they? So let me just emphasize, these are uh, historically outdated procedures. These are not things that, that are occurring now. These are things that people used in the 1800s prior to the advent of things like antibiotics or other pharmacotherapy that is prevalent now. So it's, it's not as if to say, you know, you should go out and start cauterizing yourself or anything like that, or, or visit a doctor who does that. Mm-hmm. The point generally that I was making was that, you know, before, um, you know, before, for, for example, uh, morphine was isolated from opium in the early 1800s. Once it was isolated and could be isolated in the laboratory as an alkaloid, it became much more readily available. 
Um, general anesthesia, anesthesia was, was you know, invented in the mid 1800s. That made it possible to do lengthy surgeries, which before were not possible because people were in terrible pain and moving around and such. But one of the downsides you know, of these amazing technologies and advances in medicine is that we kind of, I think, have, first of all, we overuse many of these remedies. We overuse opioids. The current opioid epidemic is, is a tragic example of that. Um, but, but we probably over, overuse a lot of medical interventions when a better intervention in some cases might be to try to instigate our own innate healing properties by just simply tolerating pain or giving enough time um, for the body to heal itself, or even using somewhat painful therapies, not, not cauterization or moxibustion or anything like that. But for example, um, acupuncture. So mm -hmm. a paper came out recently, which I thought was really, really interesting, that speculated that the mechanism of acupuncture is essentially pain and that the little bit of pain that the needle induces um, sets in motion through hormesis, um, our own endogenous opioids. So we upregulate production of our own opioids and that, that's, that's the source of pain relief or analgesia. Also very interestingly, there are some studies looking at using naltrexone to treat chronic pain. Now naltrexone is an opioid receptor blocker so that means when people take naltrexone, they don't feel the effects of opioids. Why on earth would you give that to somebody with chronic pain? Mm. Because it tricks the body into thinking that there aren't enough opioids. And then they the body starts to upregulate um, its own endogenous um, production of opioids. So it's these types of, of things that, you know, I think still have utility um, mm -hmm. in medicine that, that we should take another look at. For sure. Yeah. And, and some of them I think are more, uh, more mainstream than others. I think acupuncture is probably gaining more general acceptance than the other ones we listed. The last form of therapy in the book that, that you noted, which I found really interesting was uh, ECT, electroconvulsive shock therapy. Um, from what I gather about ECT, it's fairly controversial. So what would be your, your take on, on, you know, the application of, of that? Well, so it's interesting. It, you're right. It is controversial. I think just the notion of, you know, electrically shocking somebody's brain and is so horrific. And then of course there are movies like one flew over the cuckoo's nest, mm. you know, that incredible. Movie. That's one of my favorites. Yeah. It's a great movie, but it's not a great depiction of ECT because if you look at evidence-based treatments for um, serious psychiatric disorders, like, you know, catatonic psychosis, ECT is one of the best treatments that we have. And of course, what I describe in the book is the early invention of ECT and how, um, you know, a man, a man who was psychotic kind of got off the train in Italy and was induced to become a subject in this laboratory and was given these violent shocks. Um, and, you know, that's totally inhumane and horrific, but, the, but he got better. He came out of his psychosis. And so today, you know, ECT is not painful. We anesthetize people, we give them muscle relaxants so that their bodies don't convulse when they're getting the treatment. And for reasons that we don't fully understand, it can be very effective for severe depression, for severe bipolar disorder, for a psychosis when people have lost touch with reality. Um, probably it works a little bit like when we have to, you know, um, reboot our computers after they freeze. Huh. It just sort of, it stresses the entire system 
and it kind of causes the whole system to start from fresh. That's probably how it works. So it's, it's a form really of hormesis using a noxious stimuli in a controlled way uh, in order to stimulate the brain's own healing mechanisms. I will also add that there's a new type of treatment called TMS or transcranial magnetic stimulation, mm. which is um, like ECT, it's ECT light in a way. It's using um, magnets to create an electrical current in certain parts of the brain by applying the magnets to the external skull. So you don't have to go in the hospital. It's an often office-based uh, therapy. And uh, you know it's been shown to be effective for treatment-resistant depression. It's been it was just FDA approved for smoking cessation, so to help people stop smoking. Wow. And it may have more applicability as well in other forms of addiction and other mental illnesses. Yeah, and I, I've never really I, I don't I come to this conversation not knowing a lot about ECT, but that analogy is, is salient. That it's almost like you said rebooting computer. I'm wondering for people listening who are unfamiliar with ECT. Is this elective? Like, like if you have a severe depression, can you go to your psychiatrist and sign up for ECT or is it only in <laughs> severe psychosis, schizophrenic cases that, that it would even be considered? Yeah. So ECT is not first line treatment. Mm -hmm. um, usually we will try psychotherapy and medication and only go to ECT if that patient is what we call treatment refractory, not able to respond. But there are other instances where we might use ECT even in a non-treatment refractory case. And surprisingly, one of them is in pregnant women. Mm. So in pregnant women where we don't want to expose the fetus to medications, but the pregnant woman is severely psychotic, for example, um, and needs you know, an emergency intervention, we, we might give ECT then to that pregnant woman as a first-line treatment. I will say though that you, know, you can go to your doctor and talk about ECT if you're somebody who has tried a bunch of other remedies and, you, and, and they're really not working. Or you can talk to your doctor about, about transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is again, a, a milder form of the same idea. But it does reinforce your, your, your you know, main hypothesis on, on the utility of, of exposure to pain. I want to turn to neuroadaptation, uh, which you alluded to earlier. And there was, there were some data points in the book, which were very interesting about how certain rewards increase your dopamine release. So for those who haven't yet read the book, um, what Anna was, was articulating was that uh, ingestion of chocolate increases the, the dopamine release by 55%, sex by 100%. Nicotine by 150%, cocaine by 225%, and amphetamines by 1,000%. So these numbers are very cool, but uh, what exactly do they mean in practice? Right. Great question. So these are based on animal studies, not human studies. This comes from sticking a probe in a rat's brain and literally measuring how much dopamine spikes above tonic baseline levels. Because remember, we're all... Um, you're all, all pulsing dopamine all the time. It's, these are deviations from baseline. Um, and just, you know, giving a rat a piece of chocolate and seeing what it does to their dopamine, et cetera. And I mean, we can extrapolate from that that humans probably have a similar types of responses, but with a couple caveats. First of all, you know, amphetamines, because of their particular mechanism, whereby the mechanism itself is to release large amounts of dopamine into the synapse, that space between neurons. The, the fact that amphetamines are at a thousand isn't necessarily that amphetamines are so much more addictive than let's say cocaine or nicotine. Um, it's partially to do with the, the specific mechanism of, of action. Different drugs work by different mechanisms. For example, alcohol works on our endogenous opioid and GABA systems. Um, 
you know, different drugs work in different ways. The final common pathway though, we do believe for all of these addictive drugs and behaviors is dopamine, which is why it's kind of become the currency for measuring addictive potential. The other variable that's very important to keep in mind though with these, uh, with these measurements is that there's enormous inter-individual variability, which comes down to drug of choice. So mm -hmm. what, what is reinforcing or positive or addictive for one person may not really have any reinforcing effects for another or may even be aversive. Uh, so for example, for me, you know, alcohol is not really uh, euphorogenic or a relaxant. It just kind of gives me a headache and puts me to sleep, right? But as I no. talk about in my book, romance novels really are reinforcing and became something that I, um, you know, compulsively overconsumed at a certain point in my life. So it does. Okay. So there is that, there is that individual variability in the specific stimuli. Uh, earlier, you mentioned the fact with regard to the pain pleasure balance, that sometimes when you pursue too much pleasure, it might lead to the inability to enjoy pleasure. I, I think you, you refer to that as hedonism, pursuing pleasure might lead to anhedonia, inability to enjoy pleasure. So how do you explain that paradox? Right. I mean, I think the important thing is that hedonism is really the pursuit of pleasure for its own sake, not in the service of something else. And what we, we know about the neuroscience of adaptation is that our brains are really not equipped to tolerate these huge boluses of dopamine in the reward pathway. When our pleasure pain balance slams hard and fast to the side of pleasure, we need a great big Arnold Schwarzenegger gremlin on the pain side to bring it level again. And that means that we're gonna get a crash down to the pain side. That also sets off our whole adrenal, ad adrenaline system or our stress response. It's very stressful for our system to then try to work to restore a level balance or homeostasis. And it does that by down-regulating our own dopamine production and transmission. So that if we continue to use that substance or behavior again and again, we eventually change our set point so that we're in a chronic dopamine deficit state. I kind of visualize that as the neuroadaptation gremlins camped out with their tents and barbecues in tow on the pain side of the balance, which is also very helpful for understanding why people with addiction relapse, even when their lives are so much better with abstinence. Mm. It was still, it was really an early, in, early in my career, a real mystery to me. It's like, well, you, let's see, you stopped using you know, opioids, you got your, your, your job back, you got your spouse back, you know, your kids are talking to you again, why would you give it all up? Mm -hmm. And the way to really understand that is because those folks are often walking around with a pleasure pain balance tipped to the side of pain. They're in a constant state of craving and withdrawal. It's all they can do to even get through a day, um, you know, because they're experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, again, anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and intrusive thoughts of using. One of the ways to think about this is imagine if you had a really bad case of po poison oak or poison ivy, and you tried really, really hard not to scratch it. And you were able to go through the whole day and not scratch it amazingly. You put like gloves on your hands and everything. But then in the middle of the night, you woke yourself up because you were violently scratching it. Take that concept and translate it to somebody with a severe addiction, and you'll have some inkling of what it's like to be in their head. That's a, a powerful example, Anna. And, and you mentioned in the book, and and, and this was also uh, phrased, phrased very nicely, you said that for a lot of users of amphetamines, heroin, for example, what they're doing is they're chasing the siren 
of the first high. So they'll never be able to capture that first high, but they're they're just longing for it. So would you say that applies to all amphetamine users that that you're describing or, or in these other dopamine um, uh, stimuli examples? Yeah. So, I mean, heroin is an opioid, not an amphetamine, but I, mm-hmm. the, but your point is basically this idea of euphoric recall. One of the things about these, the pleasure pain balance and the neuroadaptation gremlins is once our reward pathways have seen that substance, they never forget. So we have this incredible memory for these intensely pleasurable and intensely painful experiences. But somehow we remember the pleasure um, in a more salient way than we remember the pain. And a lot of uh, people with addiction in recovery will talk about euphoric recall and how it's there. It's very, what they have at ready access is the memories of early use when the drug was so incredibly powerfully reinforcing for them. And it's really much harder to remember all the bad things that came along with drug use and repeated use and chasing the drug is often trying, trying to recreate those initial, you know, feelings of feeling good of, you know, Mm -hmm. being in that wonderful space and never, ever being able to quite get there, you know, get, getting close, but, but not, and then taking more or taking more potent form or instead of smoking, injecting all, all of which are ways to overcome tolerance, but it's all this effort to kind of recreate that initial high, which remains elusive, which is why sometimes, um, you know, heroin addiction or other opioid addiction is called chasing the dragon. You're sort of trying to chase uh, this elusive mythical creature that you can never actually find. It reminds me of uh, there's a concept usually applied to relationships called rosy retrospection, which is like the idea that when you look back on uh, a failed relationship or uh, really any experience in life, for some reason, the the elements of it that tend to uh, remain the most salient over time are, are the the positive ones. I think it's it's almost like a, a cognitive heuristic of ours. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense too, because when we fall in love, you know, that's a huge dopamine kind of a thing. And so that that's kind of how dopamine works. It, it, it really dominates. It wants us to remember that. And, and from an evolutionary perspective, that makes sense because, you know, again, in a world of scarcity and ever-present danger, we have to be extremely motivated to seek out natural rewards like food, clothing, shelter, finding a mate in mm-hmm. order to survive in that environment. So our brains evolved this pleasure pain balance type of mechanism to keep us constantly seeking for more and remembering that too, right? You can imagine that if you're, you know, crossing, you know, some desert and you found an oasis, it would be really advantageous to remember where that was and remember the experience. And so our brains have really created these kind of hippocampal tattoos for those types of experiences. Yeah, hippocampal tattoos is 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 uh, is a nice way to put it. And one of your other interesting theories is really has to do with where these addictions are rooted. There's a quote from the book that that I wanted to to, to read out loud about addiction and childhood. And you write, "I worry that we may have." Excuse me. I worry that we have both over sanitized and over pathologized childhood, raising our children in the equivalent of a padded cell with no way to injure themselves, but also no means to ready themselves for the world. So what did you mean by that? Yeah, well, you know, I've been practicing psychiatry for more than 20 years. And over the past two decades, I've seen rising rates of young people coming in who are in such utter despair. It's tragic to see. And yet when you look at their home lives, they've got loving parents. These are people of privilege. They've got access to the best education. They've got access 
to all of the, you know, wonderful things that we think of as part of a healthy, um, thriving kind of childhood existence. And yet many of them are really, really unhappy. And when I try to figure out why that is, I think a large part of it is precisely because there's not enough friction in their lives. There's, mm. there's not enough challenge. There's very little experience of pain. There's this huge fear among parents that if they make their kids do anything their kids don't want to do, they're going to traumatize them. Mm. Their kids are going to end up on the psychotherapy couch. You know, kids can have whatever they want now. There's no waiting for you know, birthdays or Christmases, you just click a button on Amazon and it comes the next day. And I think all of this has really changed, you know, the pleasure pain thresholds that people have now where they just have almost lost the ability to tolerate pain of any kind. And they're constantly upping the ante to try to find something that gives them pleasure, but it's getting harder and harder. And yet, and, and you also uh, epitomize that when you say that we're by protecting our children from adversity, we're making them deathly afraid of it. And I think I think there's something to that, exactly as you're saying. I think there's a, a fear among parents of of exposing their their child to too much adversity early on, and then as a result, when people encounter any form of, of adversity, it doesn't seem like they have the resilience. They they have the tools uh, and they're equipped to actually to deal with that. Yes, I, I, I absolutely agree with that. One of the other uh, things that you postulate is that easy access to uh, opioids, alcohol, cigarettes, porn, um, fast food is, is one of the roots of addiction. Can, can you flesh that out a bit? Yeah. So when we look at the risk factors for addiction, those can roughly be grouped into three categories, nature, nurture, and neighborhood. By nature, um, you know, we mean that if you have a biological parent or grandparent with addiction, you're at increased risk of becoming addicted yourself, even if you're raised outside of that drug using home. If you have a co-occurring mental illness, you're at increased risk of becoming addicted. So those are biological inborn nature type of things. In terms of nurture, if you are brought up in a home where you're um, subjected to various forms of trauma, um, you're at increased risk, th probably through epigenetic changes, or if you just live in a home where substance use is explicitly or implicitly condoned as a coping strategy or as appropriate recreation in extremes, you're more likely to get addicted. But this third category neighborhood is one that um, people kind of don't think about. And it basically means that if you live in a neighborhood where drugs are sold on the street corner, you're more likely to try them and you're more likely to get addicted to them. If you live in an environment where highly reinforcing drugs and behavior are readily accessible 24 seven, you're more likely to try them and you're more likely to get addicted to them. We have everything we could ever want and more. Almost everything we ingest or do, especially recreationally has been engineered to be addictive, to be reinforcing, to keep us tapping and scrolling um, such that we've really all become vulnerable to the problem of addiction. And that the biggest risk factor today for all of us is not our innate vulnerability, or our early childhood experience is just living in a drugified world. Yeah, and I, I wonder, and, and you know, I've spoken about this in uh, with respect to digital consumption a number of times with um, neuroscientists and academics, and I wonder if if that plays into um, your idea that consumption itself in 2021 has has become a drug. So it's not necessarily that people are ingesting opioids or amphetamines, as you said. Um, it's just the act of actually consuming 
all, you know, from, from the cell phones and, and the, the media and, and um, you know, the, all the interfacing with screens, uh, screen sucking as it's called is, is <laughs> drugification as you would call it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. I think it's appropriate to conceptualize screens as a drug. They're highly reinforcing in and of themselves. Some people have likened them to like the primitive fire, you know, gathering around the fire. The, we now have a flickering screen. The difference being that people used to gather around the fire together and now we're often alone in our, you know, little separate cubbies looking at our own stuff. So we're not really connecting to the people in our real lives. Mm. And, and, and addiction in and of itself already is isolating. And then if you add to that, a drug that is that essentially isolates us from the people in our real lives. Of course, we can create these meaningful connections, which are true and good with people online. So it's not all bad, but I think it's really key to appreciate the intrinsically reinforcing properties of so many things, whether it's food or screens or, you know, gosh, shopping. I mean, there's just so many ways in which we just have become beings who consume that's sort of our reason for living and essentially the dark side of capitalism you know it is a remarkable thing when when you find yourself with friends or family and no one either has their devices on them or no one's on their device it's it's refreshing it's like oh this is this is how life was was meant to be lived do, do you know what i mean oh i do and um, <laughs> what's, sad, what's sad is that it's not even noteworthy but you're absolutely right especially in the last couple of years of course with covid it's become also very culturally normative to be mm -hmm. on your phone all the time. And I, I hope that we can reverse some of that and establish some new digital etiquette around that. Cause I think it is important to have, you know, screen-free times and screen-free interactions and, and make sure we're, you know, trying to connect with each other in real life. I couldn't agree more. I mean, most, most listeners can relate to going out to a busy restaurant and you look around and, and you're the only table in the, building that's actually conversing face to face and not staring at their phones. And I wonder if we can sort of draw a line connecting this conversation to the instances of, you know, people's avoidance of pain earlier, because it does seem like, and I think you pose this in the book as well, we're constantly seeking to distract ourselves from the present moment in order to avoid this toleration of, of discomfort. Am I sort of explaining that correctly? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think we've become masters at distraction, you know, and our phones are, are the main way that we do that now. And, and the problem with that is, I mean, one of the cardinal features of any addictive drug is that we can control it, right? We can change the way we feel by ingesting the drug or changing something about the drug, um, which is fundamentally not good because then again, we don't build up those mental calluses to tolerate things that we can't control um, or conversations that are maybe, you know, a little bit boring or frustrating or hurtful. Um, you know, this is all about, you know, what, what skills are we developing here? There's some very interesting work looking at um, people's brains as they're engaging in immediate rewards versus long-term delayed rewards. And those, those studies show that when people are getting an immediate reward, something that, you know, money or a cookie or something right away, it activates the emotion part of their brain. Um, and when they're engaging in some activity, which involves delayed rewards, it activates the prefrontal cortex, which is the gray matter right behind our foreheads. You know, and I worry that because of the way that 
you know, everything is sort of instant in people. Um, we're not exercising them. We're all kind of li living in our limbic brain and um, have just come to become accustomed to that instant gratification. And when we don't get it, we hardly know what to do with ourselves. Living in our limbic brain. That's uh, I, I might, I might make a, a, that the title of the episode. Cause that's, that's actually pretty beautiful. Um, one of my favorite parts of the book on this topic is where you write that Anna, you recommended that one of your patients try walking to class without listening to anything and instead let her own thoughts boil to the surface. And she responded to this with in incredulity. She, you know, she, she just was completely averse to the idea of being her, uh, alone with her thoughts. So why to those listening that are, you know, fearful of, of walking alone to class or, or to work without music, without their AirPods in, without listening to a podcast like this, why are those people so afraid to be alone with their thoughts? Well, because thoughts are weird. I mean, first of all, we have a lot of them. The brain is a lot like a beating heart. It just never stops. And, you know, many of the thoughts are like at best annoying, um, kind of the repeated, like, why did I do that? Why did I do that? Why did I do that? Or, you know, worse, you know, intense thoughts of guilt or shame, regret, sadness. So I think it, it can be very hard to just let ourselves think our thoughts. As I talk about in the book too, like we can have really weird thoughts, you know, like kind of bizarre and scary thoughts. Um, I talk a little bit about how when I was a new mother, I would have occasionally these intrusive thoughts of dropping my baby or smashing my baby's head on the counter intentionally. And, you know, I was horrified by having those thoughts, but by just sort of sitting with it and observing it, I realized what it was really about was that I was so anxious about caring for this helpless creature and worried that I wouldn't be up to the task. And my anxiety was manifesting as these intrusive thoughts of harming my baby. So, I mean, you know, that's a skill that you have to practice that ability to tolerate um, those distressing thoughts, the ability to sit with it long enough to understand where it comes from and what it's really about. Um, but if we don't do that, we're going to deprive ourselves of the capacity to number one, know ourselves, number two, sort out our problems. And number three, come up with any new ideas. If we're constantly reacting to things like, you know, other things, which can be okay for part of our days, but it's really good to give yourself the time when you're not reacting. That's why people uh, end up, you know, having whiteboards in the shower, right? Like shower thoughts, um, because that's the only time in the day oh. where, or, or right before bed, where people actually sit, you know, stand yeah. alone with their thoughts and are able to process things and reflect and come up with new ideas. I will say uh, the, the passage that you referenced, uh, you know, some of your anxieties of uh, raising a newborn and sort of the, the um, things that came in your mind. Uh, I actually, um, I was diagnosed with OCD. So I deeply, deeply related to sort of that experience that you wrote about, because I, I you know, I've had similar thoughts myself. I don't, I don't have, have a newborn or anything like that, but similar thoughts. And it was interesting. I think you wrote in the book that the, it wasn't so much that this was what you wanted to do. It was more like your brain was showing you, was bringing one of your deep-seated fears to the right. forefront of your mind to show you what you were anxious about. Yeah. So I wonder if, if, and we'll talk about me mental illness in, in, in a few moments, but I wonder if that is sort of like a, a coping mechanism um, for people that deal with anxiety to allow thoughts like that to, to bubble to the surface. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the, the mainstays of treatment for OCD is instead of trying to distract yourself from those intrusive thoughts or images, you just let yourself tolerate them. 
and you kind of dive deeply into them and observe them um, and kind of walk through like, okay, would I really do this? Um, you know, sort of, well, if this thing that I'm imagining really happened, you know, what, what would happen after that? And what would happen after that? So you let yourself kind of be in that thought rather than trying to run away from that thought. Sometimes distraction is okay. So if we have obsessive ruminations, distracting ourselves from it is, is a good thing because, you know, we want to kind of create new neural loops. But at some point, if we're continually running away from those kinds of scary, intrusive, obsessive thoughts, we'll just, we'll never run fast enough. It'll always catch up to us. Mm. So what, what, so the way to handle it is just sort of stop and turn and face it and say, okay, there, I, I'm having that thought again, you know, and do, doing some cognitive processing around it. That's that white bear experiment, right? Where they asked the participants for 60 seconds to not think about the, the white bear. And then they reported thoughts of <laughs> thoughts, of the white bear. I want to say one more thing about uh, about boredom here. So I love that this was such a focal point of the book. And I do think um, that these social media platforms that, that we've been speaking about, they've tapped into something very interesting. And I don't think it's the desire for social validation or instant gratification, as people insist. I'm, both of those can uh, contribute. But I think the social media platforms are really, you know, have emerged as one of the the only um, you know mechanisms in recent years for people to to have sort of like a twenty four seven source of stimuli to prevent them from con- confronting this fear of being bored. I think that's that's at the root of, of what the issue is there. I don't know if you agree. I think that's I think it's it's many things. I mean, I think there is this you know this desire for to be validated, the desire to have the same emotion at the same time as other people. Um, you know, the desire for novelty, um, the the sort of erotic stimulation that can come out of various social media platforms. So I think there's a lot there, but I absolutely agree with you. It's it's become you know a nervous habit um, where like where that. people really are um, just it's kind of reflexive and they grab for it, and it's what people do in their downtime. It's kind of this constant sort of distraction and escape. And it's now it's happening unconsciously. I mean, people are reaching for the phone, um, you know, just sort of because. So um, I think you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's that, that constant need for distraction and numbing Um, and it's relaxing. I mean, the truth is that it's relaxing for people to just sort of scroll and tap. And so you could say, well, you know, is that all bad? And it's not that it's all bad, all good things in moderation, all bad things, some bad things in moderation. But again, I think we do it much more than we realize. Mm. And we're also, you get caught up in that addictive loop where you're in a dopamine deficit state and then you have to do it just to kind of feel normal. Mm -hmm. And that's the loop that I think, which is very hard to observe in ourselves and to even realize when we've gone there. Um, But that, you know, part of what is driving us to reach for it again is not just the desire to be distracted, but part of the desire to be distracted comes from the fact that we're in a dopamine deficit state, that we're in withdrawal from the last time that we used. Yeah, and that's something that, that Dan Lieberman spoke about, about how the, the dopamine, dopaminergic systems were firing at, at um, a certain rate, whatever it was, 20 per second. And then when you received a reward, like a, a notification on Instagram, and then when you expected the reward and didn't get it, they just shut down. So I think there's, there's something to it. And also, Anna, I, you know, I would venture so far as to say, and maybe this is a little bit too philosophical, but I do think our, our fear of, bore, uh, of being bored and our reticence to be alone with our thoughts 
also sort of speaks to our discomfort with our own mortality. I did an episode a while back uh, based on a book called Denial of Death, which which is one of my favorites. And he talks about how um, Ernest uh, Becker, I believe, talks about how our entire lives are um, us sort of constructing this internal framework where we think we're immortal because we want to sort of distract ourselves from the idea that, you know, we're 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 going to die and our lives are, are actually extremely finite. So I also wonder if if that is at the root of, of why we're distracting ourselves so much and, and why we're so reluctant to sit with our boredom. Oh, yeah, I, I, I really agree with you. And that was beautifully said. You know, what, one of the things, one of the reasons that boredom is such an intolerable emotion is because when we're not doing anything, we begin to ask ourselves those big questions like, well, what should I be doing? Or why do I do anything at all? Or what is the point of my existence? So boredom brings us really face to face with those big questions. And I think culturally, um, as you say, we spend a lot of time and effort trying to run away from those questions. And I would even say that people who are prone to addiction are people who want those questions answered even more than the average person. And so they're often running away even faster. But the, the antidote or the secret to that is to stop running. Mm. To, to actually look at those questions and really meaningfully ask ourselves, well, what, why am I here? You know, what, yeah. what is my purpose? Um, how can I make meaning out of my life? You know, what, what do I care about? What are my values? Um, what makes it worth it to get through this day? But we're living in a time when we're essentially not even asking the questions. We're just running away from them. And that's too bad. You know, one of my one of my favorite quotes and listeners to the pod will uh, will take note of this because it's something I've mentioned before is that when when you die, your to do list won't be empty. Um, (laughs) And it's it just speaks to the idea of like whatever is stressing you out, whatever is, you know, troubling you today there's going to be something tomorrow that, that comes up and, and, you know, and, and sort of takes its place. Um, and, and I guess the last thing that I'll say about, about the boredom um, notion is I do think part of this, Anna, is we have so much more leisure time today than we did a hundred years ago. I think you mentioned this in the book. I think a lot of people, um, and I know this is going to sound ironic, but they don't have enough to do. Oh, <laughs> simply it's put, absolutely true. It's and absolutely and true. so that's why they're they're spending all this time on social media and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, not only are we living longer, but we have more more leisure time on any given day. I mean, the average American had about one to two hours of le- leisure time a hundred years ago. Now we average about four to five hours of leisure time. By 2040, we're going to have about seven to eight hours of leisure time. Wow! The combination of mechanization and just um, you know, the overabundance of everything means, especially if we have something like universal basic income, that most people will have more leisure time than work time. And so it does beg the question, what on earth are we going to do with ourselves? The other thing that I would just add, which is not something I say explicitly in the book, but I'm prompted to say it by our conversation, um, is that I do think that the, the lens of addiction can sometimes be applied to people who are obsessive ruminators or who are chronically anxious. And I would put myself in that category. I think there is a way in which you can actually get addicted to your own anxiety and mm. it, be, it can become your default mental, mental net, resting network. It's the kind of the place you always go. And it's sort of like this constant amount of free floating anxiety that it's gonna, if it's not gonna land on that, it's gonna land on something else. You have to, 
And so I, for me, it's been very helpful to recognize that I'm kind of addicted to being an anxious <laughs> and that if I really, you know, want to work on that and, and be free of some of that suffering, I have to work on um, recognizing that and letting go and letting myself not ruminate on the things that in some weird way give me comfort to ruminate on. Okay, so I guess that that's it's a nice segue into, into the last topic that I wanted to chat with you about, which is mental illness. And I'm wondering, based on what you just said, how is that that sensation that you described different from like a generalized anxiety, right? Like if if anxiety is your, your default spa, uh, state and there are no precipitants to it, and that's just what you go to, wouldn't that just just be you know, would you diagnose a patient with generalized anxiety? Well, sure. I mean, that would certainly meet criteria, but this is really a, a frame shift. It's a way of saying, um, what is your secondary gain from being anxious all the time? Mm. You know, what, what is the way in which that's actually reinforcing you for you and, and in service to some kind of defense? And in a way, you know, again, it's your, it's your little happy place um, in a very weird way. Because if you think about it that way, then all of a sudden it's like, well, okay, I'm kind of responsible for this. And if I'm kind of responsible for this, then I can probably change it. You know, if I think about simply abstaining from that thought loop, mm. um, like, oh, that's that, that thought loop. Yep. I go there all the time. I could just not go there. I could not let myself indulge in that thought loop, or at least be aware that my indulging in that thought loop is something is an indulgence. And it's one that, you know, is maybe comforting for me, but is um, there's a cost for the people I care about, like any addiction. So as a mother, I can tell you that I constantly worry and ruminate about my kids. And um, if I don't manage that properly, it's really burdensome for them. It's very mm. intrusive um, and it's, it's very unpleasant. And they then have to defend against me and my anxiety by, for example, not telling me things about their lives. So, you know, when I started to see that pattern happen, I said, okay, like what, I, I need to do something about this. Um, and I can. It's interesting to, to think about people being addicted to their anxieties. I think a lot of, a lot of listeners right now, um, and, and you've probably seen this a lot after, after the pandemic, just, you know, rates of anxiety and, and depression have been, diagnoses have been at an all-time high. And you talk about in the book uh, how antidepressants and other psychotropic medications, how in dulling our anxieties and depressions, they actually might prevent us from experiencing the full spectrum of human emotions. So that, that's fascinating um, and also eerie to think about. Can, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I mean, this is a phenomenon that's well-documented and I've seen many times in clinical care. Patients who start on an SSRI, for example, Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft, Celexa for anxiety, and it does help their anxiety, but it also diminishes their capacity to experience deeper emotions like grief, um, awe, um, you know, profound exhilaration. So I've had many patients who have elected to go off of those medicines, not because they're not working, but because in some kind of funny way, they're working too well. Um, this is not to say that those medications have no utility or that they're bad. Uh, they're absolutely vital, in some cases, life-saving. And th this is a, you know, ultimately the individual's choice. But I think it's worth reflecting on the cost, um, which is not something that we've maybe properly done before. 
I'm wondering too, and, and you alluded to earlier when you talked about how a lot of us are just quick to take a pill um, rather than actually confronting the source of uh, anxiety or pain or illness. Uh, I, I think you phrased it as using pills as a substitute for self-care. And obviously, um, you know, we wouldn't advise people not seeking um, uh, psychiatric treatment or psychological treatment. But I'm wondering if based on what you're saying, there might be circumstances where people would, would you know, choose other forms of treatment as, as opposed to these antidepressants or psychotropic meds. Yeah. I mean, I think in a way these medications have allowed us to get lazy, right? Um, you know, instead of doing the hard working, the hard daily things that we have to do to stay well, like getting enough sleep, eating right, exercising, um, we've just become accustomed to sort of taking um, medications to sort of take care of those things for us. So again, it's not that it's, it's you know, I would never throw the baby out with the bathwater, mm. but these are just my reflections after 25 years of practicing psychiatry of sort of the good, the bad, and the ugly of, of the way that we practice psychiatry now. And how would you respond to the contention? I don't know if there's any empirical evidence supporting this, but that SSRIs, these antidepressants, um, they themselves might be addictive, right? Like people uh, have reported being on a Lexapro, a Prozac, a Paxil for decades. And then when they attempt to get off, there's, um, I think there's a phenomenon called brain zaps, right? Like discontinuation syndrome. Yes. So is that, is that a possibility? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I've seen that many times over the years. We don't like to call it withdrawal in the field of psychiatry because then that implies that uh, antidepressants are addictive and, you know, we don't, we don't really want to say that. And there's not, there's not clear evidence that it is. Uh, for most people, they're not addictive per se, but there's certainly this discontinuation uh, syndrome, which makes sense, you know, that the brain would adapt to the presence of that molecule. And then if it's taken away, the brain would have to readapt. And there are distinct withdrawal phenomenons that people experience. And in some cases, um, you know, very severe discontinuation or withdrawal phenomenons. I will also, I will also add that I have had patients who misuse and get addicted um, to antidepressants. It's rare, um, but, it, but, it's, but it's also, I, I've seen it. But I think more importantly, again, thinking about the potential costs um, not just the benefits of, of any psychotropic that we take. You know, for people listening who, who might be in this circumstance, um, is there a scenario where they might use psychotropic medication or, or antidepressants and be able to, to move off of it? Or is it sort of an inevitable, inevitability that, you know, people who take that medication will sort of be on it for the long haul? Oh, no, my goodness. I mean, the vast majority of people uh, we'll, we'll use these for a period of time to help them get out of a serious crisis or mental health episode. Some will continue on for many years and even decades. And many of those people uh, will not, will do well for a long periods of time on that medication um, and it will continue to work for them. So it's not at all to say that the majority of people are going to have trouble or or become you know, physically dependent or have an aversive reaction, not at all. Um, but, um, but it's just, again, important to remember that, that there can be downsides and to reflect on those. And that I think ideally um, the, the best use of these types of, of, of um, medications is you know, maybe on the order of months to years, depending on, on the antidepressant. 
um, and, you know, build using that time to build up other coping strategies. But having said that, some people will need to be on medication lifelong. So it really depends on the person. I guess the one carve out to that, though, is um, addictive medications like benzodiazepines, mm -hmm. Xanax, Valen. Those are medicines that really should only be used short term. Right. Um, they're medicines that are that the evidence supports short-term use, but not long-term use. And with long-term use, because they're potentially addictive, even when people don't necessarily get addicted, they will potentially develop severe physiologic dependence. And then the withdrawal phenomenon is really significant. Also opioids. I think, you know, when you talk about pills as a substitute for self-care, nowhere in my opinion is that more prevalent than with Xanax. I know uh, I have a couple of people in my life who, um, you know, are sort of generally neurotic and, and anxious um, to begin with. And whenever they sort of feel that tightness in their chest, they just take a Xanax, take half a Xanax and it goes away. And uh, I think you do run into the dependency problem that you're alluding to in that case. Oh yeah. That is a very dangerous scenario that I would really guard against because I mean, I'm assuming these are other young people your age, and not only are they, you know, contributing to the problem of neuroadaptation and um, um, creating a scenario in which it will be potentially very difficult to get off once they get older because we lose our brain plasticity as we age, but also they're not learning other coping strategies. Their main coping strategy becomes popping a pill, which means that they're really depriving themselves of the opportunity to learn other coping strategies. So this is a really big problem. And that has to do with what we spoke about earlier with, with building resilience and exposure to adversity. Um, right. You mentioned in the book, the World Happiness Report, uh, which I, I guess assesses how happy in general most, most citizenries are. And you say that richer countries generally have higher rates of anxiety compared to poorer countries. Not surprising in the context of what, what we've spoken about so far today, but well, why exactly do you think this is? Well, again, I mean, I think it's the problem of overabundance. I think it's the problem of being insulated from pain, having access to all of these drugified um, behaviors and substances. I think both individually and collectively, we've reset our pleasure pain pathway to the side of pain such that we're all more vulnerable to the experience of pain, even with minor insults. And we're all having a harder time experiencing pleasure because we're constantly ingesting these high dopamine rewards. So I think this is really, um, you know, major modern problem and rich countries are more aff afflicted than poor countries because rich countries are richer. You know, it's sort of the the problem of privilege um, as my <laughs> problem of privilege as my puppy uh, tries to. Mm -hmm to interject in this conversation as she does sometimes on the pod. Um, whereas you say, sometimes people just have too much time on their hands and, and uh, too much leisure time. And as a result, they sort of, um, you know, that, that anxiety takes hold. So we've covered a lot of ground today. I touched on, you know, a hundred different topics. If there's one thing that you want listeners to take away from our conversation, what would that be? Well, at the end of my book, I have the 10 rules of the balance, which are sort of the summative, um, informative sort of take home lessons. And um, I think the, the most important thing is just to recognize that if you're unhappy in your life, one of the things you might try as an experiment, which is counterintuitive, is to eliminate some of the um, things, substances or behaviors that you rely on as a crutch to make you, yourself feel better and see if um, a period of abstinence of, a, of about a month from that substance might actually um, make you feel better paradoxically by resetting your brain reward pathways and allowing you to take more joy in more modest rewards. 
I love that suggestion. And and as you told one of your patients, maybe just like leave the house without your AirPods or, you know, the <laughs> old fashioned headphones. Um, and, and as much as, you know, I want folks to listen to, to podcasts like this and uh, yeah. conversations with Dr. Lemke. Uh, but I, you know, I also think it's important for people to have that time to reflect and to, um, you know, like, like think, think things through. Um, yeah. 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 And I think what's really important to emphasize is that when you first try that, it will be boring. It will be uncomfortable. It won't be fun, but the more you do it, the, the more you'll be able to see yourself in the world in a new way. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. So to everyone listening, you can purchase uh, Anna Lemke's book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence on Amazon or anywhere that books are sold. Anna, this has been a wonderful conversation. I'm sure listeners want to know where they can go to follow you and learn more about your work in general. Well, I'm not on social media, so there's not really a place, but they, they, can, they can tune into your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, awesome. And, and and you do interviews like this on on uh, different shows. So yeah. I'm sure I'm sure there's lots of places they can go to to hear about your book. And definitely and, and uh, I mentioned this to Anna before we hit record, but uh, definitely check out check out Dopamine Nation. It was a book that I could not put down. There's lots of anecdotes and vignettes and experiences um, from Dr. Lebke that that we didn't have time to, to, to share here. But um, if you're interested in, in anything we discussed, I think you'll enjoy the book a lot. Thank you so much again for joining me. I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thanks so much for a great conversation. There you have it, guys. That was my conversation with Dr. Anna Lemke. As I said at the outset, you know, we covered a lot of, of intense, uh, heavy, heavy subjects, particularly with respect to mental illness. And I think maybe I'll, I'll start there. Um, I think that I think that there's something to be said, as Anna referred to at the end, about pills being a substitute for self-care and a crutch and how a lot of us sort of just need to expose ourselves to more pain. Um, I noted in the episode that in in you know the start of the 20th century, doctors believed that some degree of pain was healthy. There's a, a, a quote in the book. I'll, I'll read for you right now. The famous 17th century physician Thomas Seidenman, excuse me, Thomas Seidenham, said this about pain. I look upon every effort calculated totally to subdue pain and inflammation dangerous in the extreme. For certainty, a moderate degree of pain and inflammation in the extremities are the instruments which nature makes use of for the wisest purposes. And this is something we talked about a lot in the episode, right? Like pain is is healthy, right? Like we, we talked a bit about hormesis, um, the branch of science that studies the beneficial effects of administering small to moderate doses of, of noxious or painful stimuli. And it comes from the Greek ancient Greek word, uh, horm, horm, what is this, horm, horm hormine, horm, am I saying that right, horm, hormane, to set in motion, impel, or urge on, and you see it, there's so many different applications, we talked about um, cold showers, we talked about exercise, uh, as exercise in particular, um, Anna wrote that it's immediately toxic to cells, leading to increased temperatures, nox, noxious oxidants, and oxygen and glucose deprivation, but the evidence is overwhelming that exercise promotes health and the absence of exercise along with sedentary living can be deadly, right? And then – so I think that's a powerful example of, of the benefit of, of pain. And then we, you know, we talked about cold showers, about how endurance, endurance athletes claim that um, ice baths or cold showers, Scottish showers, um, James Bond 007 showers uh, – 
are extremely health promoting. Like taking a, I think Anna mentioned taking a hot shower with at least a minute or two of cold shower at the end. Um, there was a study done at Charles University in Prague where 10 men volunteered to submerge themselves uh, in cold water for one hour, uh, so 57 degrees Fahrenheit. And the blood samples after the experiment showed that their plasma dopamine concentrations increased by 250% and their plasma norepinephrine concentrations increased by 530% as a result of cold water immersion. Now, if you're like me and you're, you know, you're, you're just averse to cold water and can't imagine being in ice water for a, for a minute, let alone an hour, um, that might be a little extreme. But I think the, the principle is well taken that um, by pressing on the, the pain side of the scale, um, you trigger the, the pleasure side as well, uh, which I guess like intuitively it makes sense, right? Like uh, pleasure is the body's natural reflexive response to pain. Um, and Anna mentioned with intermittent exposure to pain, our hedonic set point gets weighted to the side of pleasure. So over time, we're becoming less vulnerable to pain and more able to feel pleasure over time. So I think there's there's something to that. Um, but I do want to note, and, and I didn't mention this in our conversation, but it was in the book, pain, much like pleasure can be addictive, pain can also be addictive. And this is sort of like a cautionary note. Uh, Anna talked about people like um, cutting themselves or, or burning themselves to experience pain. Uh, there's also adrenaline-seeking uh, you know, there's also instances of people being addicted to adrenaline activities, so like skydiving, hang gliding, and activities like that. Um, so just like pleasure can be addictive, I think it's worth noting that pain can be addictive as well. And we talked a lot about addiction, which I feel like at this point uh, is something that, that Nervous Habits is known for because I feel like we've had so many addiction specialists and neuroscientists talking about this. Um, but it does bear repeating, right? Like, like we talked about uh, addiction to drugs, and I think the quote from the book was that addiction in itself has become a drug. Um, and I do think that for both for poor, uneducated people and and rich, educated people, you are seeing, um, you know, an addiction to to devices, uh, an addiction to information. Um, we talked about the opioid crisis uh, with. With with hero, uh, you know, with, with drugs like heroin, and it is interesting. And this was uh, something pulled from a New York Times article on the opioid crisis. Um, I don't think this is in the book. I think this is something I found. Um, and here, here's an interesting tidbit: a drug like heroin creates a tidal wave in the reward circuits of the brain. To an outsider, it might look like when you're on heroin that you passed out, but on the inside, you feel like a master of the universe, like you're being hugged by Jesus. As one heroin user said, there's peace in your skin and not a single feeling of pain. And, and the result of this, you guys, is you're, you're chasing the dragon, like Anna said. You're chasing that first high by taking more. But even a thousand more doses will never bring back that experience of the first time that, that you got high off, off an opioid like heroin. And, and there's been... You know, a lot of literature, a lot of attention paid to the opioid crisis, um, which really reinforces that every pleasure exacts a price, you know, and the pain that follows, um, this is from the book as well, is usually longer lasting and longer and more intense than the pleasure that gave, gave rise to it. Um, 
You know, and you have that rosy retrospection. You have the fact that people think about the last time they got high and, and they don't remember the withdrawal or the pain, but they remember the pleasures, which it's not particularly evolutionary useful, uh, evolutionarily useful. Um, Anna also writes in the book, we didn't talk about this, but she writes about um, addiction to sex, which is is probably more common than all of us um, you know, would, would expect. The, the book actually begins, I, I don't want to give too much away because I do want all of you to check it out, but the book begins um, with a man who built a masturbation machine out of a metal rod and a record player. This is, I think, one of Anna's patients. Um, and this man actually began using a record player to masturbate and eventually discovered electrical stimulation. So this guy took electrodes made of cotton in salty water and wires he fastened them to his stereo system, and he attached them to his penis. And it it sounds, you know, it, it certainly sounds extreme. And um, you might think, oh, you know, how could a re- how, how could a rational person make make these conscious decisions? But I think it it sort of reinforces the 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 potency of of these addictions. And Anna actually makes the case that all of us are just masturbation machines. You know, maybe we're not um, maybe we're not building uh, masturbation machines out of metal rods and record players, but we're exhibiting the same behavior in other ways, you know? And and Anna tells stories in the book about um, how some of these addicts, like the sex addict, for example, would go to hotels for war conferences. And rather than preparing for his speech the next day, he would stay up all night watching porn to the point where he literally almost lost his job and to the point where he considered taking his own life. One of her other patients ran the entire spectrum of drugs, starting at age 17 with, I, th- I think it was marijuana, 18, he was snorting cocaine, 19, he switched to oxycodone and Xanax. Um, throughout through his 20s, he used per- Percocet, fentanyl, ketamine, LSD, PCP, DXM, MXE. I don't even know what some of these, some of these substances are. He eventually landed on uh, Opana, a pharmaceutical-grade opioid that led him to heroin, where he stayed um, for... It looks like close to a decade uh, until seeing Anna at age 30. And in total, in over a decade, he went through 14 different drugs. So, you know, some of these addictions can last can last a, quite a long time, even with treatment. Um, Anna writes about abstinence and how if you are addicted to a substance, it's necessary to restore homeostasis with respect to dopamine. So essentially, and this is from Anna's book, Abstinence is necessary to restore the body's natural set points and with it our ability to get pleasure from less potent rewards as well as see the true cause and effect between our substance use and the way that we're feeling. So return to the pleasure-pain balance. Um, fasting from dopamine um, allows us to – allows enough time for those gremlins that Anna spoke about to hop off of the balance and for the balances to go back to their level position. Now, it's funny. Some people, I think Dan Lieberman mentioned when we spoke about his book, The Molecule of More, don't advocate for dopamine fasting, right? It's, it's, um, it's more of an extreme maneuver that's not, you know, the body's just going to go back to its, its, um, its natural uh, state. So it would have been interesting, I guess, to get Anna's take on um, whether or not uh, this like sort of the difference between uh, a, a true dopamine fast and, and an abstinence to restore homeostasis. She also writes that swapping one drug for another um, is not effective. So you can't, you know, if you're addicted to cannabis, you can't swap in nicotine. If you're addicted to video games, you can't swap in porn. 
And we know that, right, from uh, other episodes I've had talking about habit formation and the cue routine reward. Um, sometimes you can, you know, uh, when you get that cue, you can swap in a routine and get the reward, but it doesn't always work. And and as Anna mentions, any reward that's potent enough to tip the balance towards pleasure can itself be addictive. So you're just trading one addiction for another. A couple more things I want to mention here. Um, Anna devotes a lot of time to discuss, you know, the idea of how we raise our kids contributing to addiction, which is it's interesting. We talked about how parents are, are shielding their, their children from adversity and by perceiving children as psychologically fragile, um, we're making them vulnerable to addiction. Again, I think this is something that's evolved from 100 years ago. It, it's a modern concept. In ancient times, children were, were considered miniature adults, so they were fully formed from birth. Um, and, 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 and I think to some degree, like a lot of children appreciate being treated as adults, not not being uh, coddled and, and and protected from, um, you know, from many of these these stimuli. But the issue is, and we discussed it, uh, when you when you try and keep from doing or saying things that might leave your children with an emotional scar, you might be setting them up for emotional suffering or even mental illness later in life. Um, I don't know if there's literature backing that up, but the causal link between uh, you know, that form of parenting um, and potential development of, of anxiety disorders. Um, I think there's also something to be said for our sedentary lifestyle contributing to this. Not just, as Anna mentioned, how, you know, we're, we're tethered to our digital devices and we're constantly scrolling through um, screens and, and these sort of like uh, virtual realities that we're living in, but also just, just the fact that Drugs, and this is really interesting actually. Um, I, I should have mentioned this in the episode. Uh, she writes that drugs remind us that we still have bodies. Right? Think about that for a moment. People take, take drugs um, to alter their state of mind because their, their perception of reality is stale. They want something different. They want to see the world through a different lens. I think I mentioned this. Like if you've been, if you've been with the pod since like – 2019 you remember I did an episode on alcohol consumption and sort of like the psychological roots of that and I think um I think that the altered state of mind uh you know I think the altered state of mind motivation is sensible that people take these drugs people desire uh, opioids and amphetamines alcohol even cannabis and nicotine just to alter their their perception and taking that a step further uh, Anna theorizes that our contemporary preoccupation with sex might be because it's the last physical activity that's still widely practiced. Sex is not something that you can do on your phone or on Netflix or you know while you're pooping on the toilet, um, you know, sc- scrolling through Instagram. Sex is is something that that requires here and now, right? Like put away your devices and just engage in intimacy with another person. So I think I think that. Um, I definitely agree with that. That that's part of the reason why and why we're we're you know we as a society are maybe I don't want to say we're more obsessed with sex than we were generations ago because I do think it's 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 in our nature and it's been exacerbated by things like the media and digital mediums. But I do think that that um, it is one of the last remaining physical physical activities, one of the frontiers that hasn't yet been pierced uh, by the proliferation of of the digital world, I think that contributes to it. Uh, although, you know, I mean, we talk about sex robots. Uh, we, we've discussed sex robots and uh, AR, VR, sex. And I, it's only a matter of time before you can like literally stimulate your brain 
to <laughs> maybe, okay, maybe, maybe this is like the stuff of Black Mirror, but it's only a matter of time before you can like stimulate your brain to achieve an orgasm while you're like sitting in, in a chair at the doctor's office, <laughs> um, which is super eerie to think about. And um, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up the, the debrief here by, uh, by just talking about boredom. You know, it's it's uh, somehow, some way, we always return to to to, to boredom on, on the pod and talking about why people are are, are afraid of being alone with their thoughts. Um, you guys are probably sick of hearing me say this, but uh, you know, I think Anna offers a refreshing take. She, she notes in the book. Remember the uh, the patient that she recommended should try walking to class without listening to anything and let her thoughts boil to the surface. She wrote, "Boredom is not just boring; it can also be terrifying." It forces us to come face-to-face with bigger questions of meaning and purpose. But boredom is also an opportunity for discovery and invention. It creates the space necessary for a new thought to form, without which we're endlessly reacting to stimuli around us, rather than allowing ourselves to be within our lived experience. Boredom creates the space necessary for a new thought to form, without which we're endlessly reacting to stimuli around us rather than allowing ourselves to be within our lived experience. So I'm conflicted here <laughs> because as I said on the pod, I want you guys to put your, um, I keep saying AirPods, which, which I guess is uh, elitist of me, right? Like headphones um, or earphones. I, I'm conflicted because I want you guys to put your headphones in and listen to my podcast every two weeks while you're doing physical activities. Um, cooking, cleaning, uh, at the gym, exercising, going on walks. But at the same time, I do want you to go out into the world device-free, headphone-free, and just live. I want you to sit, you know, to sit with your thoughts and to reflect and to allow thoughts to bubble to the surface naturally. Not to be reactive, but to be proactive, you know, as as corny as that sounds. Um, And I know I'm going to challenge myself to do that more. Uh, And I I talk about all the time, you know, with, with my dog, with Penny, uh, I'm always taking her out, and I'm not, I'm not, you know, always listening to music or podcasts when I do. But that to me doesn't that I wouldn't file that under boredom because you know I'm I'm doing things with her. I, I think I think boredom to me is more um, is more just turning off your computer and your TV and just sitting still, meditating. Boredom, I think meditation is the antithesis of boredom. Um, I think we have we we've had episodes. I think we've had episodes on that in the past. So any event, I really enjoyed my conversation with Anna. I hope all of you will check out her book. Um, I love the fact that she, when I asked her to, to share um, where you guys can follow her, she said your podcast. So maybe maybe she'll be back for another for another episode. Who knows? I know we do have to talk about the social dilemma at some point. <laughs> um, so on a semi-related note, next week we will be talking all about the concept of time. I'll be joined by Lisa Broderick, the author of the book, All the Time in the World, Learn to Control Your Experience of Time to Live a Life Without Limitations. And we'll be discussing the quantum laws that govern our experience of time, how you can time travel through your perceptions, and how experiencing your life in advance can help you manifest future outcomes. So I'm really looking forward to that one. That's coming up next week on Nervous Habits. Thanks so much for joining me. This has been another episode of Nervous Habits Podcast. You can follow the pod on social media, on Instagram at Nervous Habits Podcast, on Twitter at Nervous Habits underscore. Search for full episodes and clips on YouTube. Just search Nervous Habits Podcast and write to the pod via email at nervousheavispodcast at gmail.com. And remember, next time you're in the shower, try turning the water to the coldest possible setting for a minute or two. You might experience a little bit of fleeting pain, but it will be followed by a rush of feel-good dopamine. (laughs) Take care and stay nervous.